I'm only partially available podcast on iTunes. I'm Mark from Mark's Got Problems, and this is Bloody Slow. Say hello, Eddie. Hello, Eddie. I, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not slow. I thought it was high, Eddie. Yeah, but but you call me slow, man. You threw me. No, I didn't mean you, man. I just meant. I just meant you know the entire. The just entire, the whole thing. The podcasting process in general is slow. But it's okay, Eddie, because we've been away for a while, haven't we? Mate, it's been like two years. It's been a fucking long time. Two years. How Where are have you? we been? What have we been doing? I haven't seen you once in that two-year period, by the way. Has it really? even been two years? Are we just making that up? Is that something you're pulling no, out? No, I your think ass? it literally has been two years since <laughs> our last uh, podcast. That is incredible. Um, but it's okay. It's okay because we now live in a post-factual, post-rational, media narrative-driven world in which none of our arguments have to track any empirical data or real-world events, and all we need to do is redefine compassion, sympathy, and empathy, and community as weakness and uh, appeal to research-driven projects as pedantic and, you know, anyone who points out that any of our arguments might be leaning towards that side of things is just sanctimonious and we can win all the arguments. So we might as well just say, you know, we weren't away for two years, we've been here all this time and the uh, the might that is the Vaults of Whimsy has been steadily growing for that, that period of time. It's a totally utilitarian, amazing society, man. Absolutely, 100%. So how are you feeling about things at the moment in the world? Ah, uh, man, you know... Do, do you ever get that feeling where you just think, you know what, I want to move to an island and and make friends with some coconuts? I get that feeling all the time, man. I've been watching, have you, have you been watching that TV show on Channel 4 called Mutiny? By the way, we should give that a plug because that is intense. No, stuff. I haven't. I've seen the um, the trailers for it and I was like, you know what, that looks all right. But it's, from, it's on Channel 4, so I won't. It's absolutely incredible for a Channel 4 show because they, they normally try and, <laughs> <laughs> as you know, they normally try and kind of skate really close to the kind it, of is is like um like some sort of like b-list celebrity also on the on the boat is like katie price on the boat <laughs> fortunately they haven't gone like the b-list oh. kind of populist freak show route and they what, so channel four they, yeah, they've, exactly. they've they, not they, gone the channel four they, route. they haven't gone the normal channel four route they've they've gone with some actual people well, when I say actual people, of course they're actual people, but um, they, they've gone. <laughs> no, they're just they're just puppets. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. It's, it's muppets gone mutiny. They've gone. They've gone with some people with some actual credentials. Like they've got a guy oh, who, wow. who, like a former SAS guy, who was the captain. I think his name's Anthony Middleton. He's fantastic. He's he's also got another show, like a sister show on Channel Four called SAS at the moment, which is basically like inventive title. That uh, yeah, 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 he really fucking thought about that one, didn't he? Yeah, <laughs> you know, S- SAS is supposed to be the thinking soldiers. <laughs> yeah, what do you want to? Call- Call yourself, uh, F-A-S. Let's call it SAS. But anyway. But yeah, no, that, uh, the mutiny does sound good. And luckily, Channel 4 has 4OD, so I can just watch it whenever I like. The wonders of the modern age. Definitely can't fault 4OD for that shit. But yeah, I mean, it, I was just referencing that really uh, because I, I wanted to agree with you that I'm, I'm definitely down with the escapism model of handling what's going down in the UK. It's just, you know, it's all gone to shit, Mark. Without... You know, hyperbolating. It's all gone to hyperbolating. shit. Hyperbolating? <laughs> That's a word, isn't it? I don't know. Educate well, it me. is now. It is now. <laughs> it has been for many years, as we've said. It's 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 bigly a word. 
it's sort of like a port, it's a portmanteau of hyperbole and hyperventilating. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, which, to be fair, is is pretty accurate of my current state of being. <laughs> You're just sat there in a fucking panic, just. <laughs> It's all. It's the worst thing ever. Breathing into a bag. I'll tell you what. I'm. I'm not actually panicking that much at the moment because I'm sat here like an absolute douchebag with a glass of prosecco because I'm that guy. Yeah, and then you just hear me cancel the Skype call and leave. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to be associated with this man. So, listeners, at the moment, you could probably tell that we um we haven't done this in a while. We we <laughs> I mean, mate. To be fair, it's not much worse than what we were used to be doing when we had been doing it for a bit. So that's true. People should know that when we actually agreed to relaunch this, we we, we decided we we're gonna try and get a bit more structure to the show and that's already gone out the window hasn't it but anyway Uh, tell me about what's currently going on in the uk and why we're on in such a state of kind of anxiety in in the uk yeah what's going on man we have uh the lovely mrs may and also can i just point out before that we always said that we wouldn't get political that's gone out the window as well i was was thinking about that on the way over here when when i say here i mean to my bedroom um (laughs) from uh, the new (laughs) Uh, I was thinking that, that that we actually set out to be completely politically neutral, uh, and, and I think we're we're going to try and remain slightly oh, politically neutral. We're going to fail I, that. I think we both agreed <laughs> that things are too important now. Well, they, they're too important, and they're too utterly fucked. Mm. Uh, you can't what you can't ignore it. I know, man. So so the the British public, democratically chosen based on a total lie, no, let's not go there, to exit the European Union um, with absolutely no idea about what's going to happen when they do. It was yesterday that Article 50 was triggered and uh, Theresa May... By the way, that is the most misleading buzzword that's ever been created for a political process ever. The word trigger implies short and sharp. There is absolutely nothing <laughs> short and sharp about these proceedings. just press a button that's, <laughs> that, that, that like, swipes UK from the EU data. Like, push the button now. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. She's not like Trump no. in the Oval Office with the nuclear detonation uh, Also, code. Just, just, just as a thing, didn't you hear that, um, you know, Trump's been taking his holidays to, like, Florida? Apparently, like, I don't know if this is true. I read it on Reddit. Apparently, there was, like, <laughs> a guy swanning around with nuclear codes in a in a luxury hotel. Really? So that's America. Let's go on to America later. They're more yeah, fucked yeah, than yeah. us. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll deal with America later. So this is the Brexit scenario you're laying out here. Brexit, yeah. Brexit. Brexit. So basically, um, the current state of play seems to be that... Um, there was a referendum that, that was proposed by David Cameron, one of the bases on which he was elected as Prime Minister of the UK back yes. in... What year was it, Eddie? Do you remember? I, I've Googled it. It was 2015. 2015. And I remember sitting in a, in, a, in a room in Oxford with a load of my friends and waking up on the day of re-election and just feeling like the world had ended and feeling like nothing oh, yeah. really could get any worse from that point because, you know, <laughs> you know we're, we're, we're what the, uh, the alt-right would like to call... I suppose, uh, lefty lovies. I think that's probably one of the... Snowflakes. Yeah, snowflakes. Pretty little snowflakes. And I completely understand why they'd want to uh, reframe the left as as being like that. And I understand why a lot of the left probably satisfy that particular rebrand. But I've never felt yes. like I'm somebody who can't make an articulate argument with passion. Like, I will just fucking shout you down if I... <laughs> I'm joking, I, I'm joking. If needed, <laughs> I, I will shout you down. <laughs> I will fuck you up. <laughs> I will massacre you! I will massacre you! And you can never, ever fail to quote Tropic Thunder, no matter what the, uh, what the context is. Damn right. No, you're an, you're an, e- you're an elegant and eloquent man. I'm an elegant man? You may be- <laughs> <laughs> just, Yeah, just an elegant man. Didn't you know? I'm really flamboyant. I just... Yeah, you know. Well, 
I didn't want to say anything. I wear sandals and socks. <laughs> oh, God. All right, I'll take that back. But yeah, so this, this is the situation we're in. We have now had the referendum that was proposed by David Cameron, and he promised it, so he had to give it. And the nation voted in favour of leaving the European Union, despite the fact that statistics actually show that Leave voters then went on to Google what the European <laughs> Union was immediately post-referendum. And then suddenly thought, Oh yeah, well, what have we do- what have we actually done? Absolute man. And I mean, like now, I'm not saying that I went into that vote knowing the complete ins and outs of what the EU does because it's a massive organization. Would it even would you even call it an organization? It's a massive thing, it, and it covers a, like a lot trade and human rights and travel. And- I would call it a trade federation or a yeah. proto trade federation or a kind of pseudo trade federation. Yeah. But so I'm not claiming to know the total ins and outs of what it does for everyone. But I know what it is. <laughs> and I know the fundamentals. Whereas a lot of people tended to just go, yeah, I'll vote out that. Why not? Yeah, I think you're right, man. I think I think that that's I think that's one of the general points of confusion that most people have is that when when people are sort of vehemently arguing to remain in the European Union, they're sitting atop this sort of sanctimonious horse whereby they think that, that, that we're saying we actually know more about the inner workings of the European Union than you do. And actually, my argument is I don't really know about the internal affairs or the internal affairs of the Euro- European Union. And I don't know any better than you do whether we should be in or out. But that surely means we should be really conservative in our opinions about whether we should leave or not. Like, <laughs> it's, it's more of, I have no idea what what the implications of you don't know you you other person you certainly every, don't know <laughs> you, you 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 fucking don't look at your face you don't know anything but so why were we asked at what at what point was the public the most informed person to make this decision they weren't i think the key thing that came out of uh, the european union is a conversation that just revealed how little either side know about the issue yeah. Like, nobody knows what they're talking about. And we still don't know. We've we've triggered it. No idea what's going to happen. Find out. Which is why my argument has always been we have to look at the data and try and make our best forecast. That's all we can do because our emotional yeah. arguments aren't going to work because you can't use emotive arguments to make a forecast. You can't even use a lot of logical arguments to make forecasts about what's going to happen in the, in the future. Not at all. We just have to, to look at the data and make a probabilistic argument about what may or may not happen. Yeah, we just have to look at things objectively rather than subjectively. And I'd argue that bo- both on the Remain and the Leave side was a subjective decision. I mean, I'm not, I'm not even going to sit here and argue that mine was particularly objective because I didn't really have enough to go on objectively. I just kind of thought... Well, don't know what's going to happen if we leave, so I'll vote remain. See what you know, because at least we know that that that's how it works. Absolutely. I mean, the, the the analogy that I've often used is that if you if you're sitting in a car and in front of you is a road that's 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 very very long, and right at the end of that road is a big black curtain. <laughs> you don't know what's behind that curtain. You don't know whether it's the best the best road continuation that you've ever ever known oh, there, there might be fucking I love the road continuation yeah damn right there might be some pineapple trees you know adorning either side of that road either way you don't know whether it's going to be the best road at the other side of that or you don't know whether it's going to be a cliff face and then you're asked to make a 50-50 decision on whether you should drive through that curtain at full speed not even like crawling through full speed 
exactly. Should you go through the curtain or should you not? My view is that you should probably not go through the curtain. And that, you know, you know you, I might sound uncourageous, I might sound unbold, I might sound conservative, I might sound like I'm trying to tiptoe gently around the issue. Maybe I am. I'm just trying to make the best choice, that, the consequences that of which... Don't, <laughs> that don't explode me. That don't send me hurling into the ground at a speed that I can't control. But the, no. conse- the consequences are even more dire than just exploding me. It's They would explode me and potentially leave a dire mess for generations to come that i won't have any knowledge of so some might say that i have a responsibility to keep them in mind when i'm making my choice yeah i definitely think i think everyone does even if you yourself aren't going to have children and grandchildren so other people will and they will be members of the society that you had a choice in shaping and you fucked it mark no i'm joking (laughs) (laughs) i think i think we basically brought this issue up to highlight a deeper problem that i think we're having at the moment across most of the western world with the way that rational conversation proceeds in public by which you mean it doesn't well yeah and also that we alluded to earlier with a bit of a hyperbolic diatribe from me but i mean the terms post-factual and post-rational have come from the united states from that you know that awful news report that came just post um Trump's election and wasn't it alternative fact alternative fact is the term yep yep, yep alternative that's right, that's right, that's right. facts yeah it was a phrase used by uh US counselor to president Kellyanne Conway Kellyanne Conway that's it yep yeah okay so alternative alternative facts uh, you, alternative facts is basically um you know what's true uh, true what's considered true it's just a deviation from that <laughs> And the blunt way of saying a departure from what is true is... False. Alternative facts. Alternative facts. So, I mean, one one key example that's really stuck out to me uh, recently has been um, Donald Trump Jr., Donald Trump's son, who he seems to keep very close to his chest along with uh, with his daughter uh, as part of his his office, actually, which, is, which has seemed strange to a lot of people. Um, Donald Trump Jr. has come out recently and criticised the mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, for apparently seeming to be quiet on the the recent uh, attacks in London. Yes, I saw this. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Eddie, you live in London. What what was the atmosphere uh, like in What was the atmosphere like in London? Um, um, well, it it was tense, but also in London, um, people just are miserable and get on with their lives. Sure. Yeah. So I had I got a load of texts because I it, the attack was in Westminster and I don't work uh, in Westminster. I'm <laughs> just gonna around. say I don't work. <laughs> and I, I don't, don't I work. don't work. So um, no, I don't work in in that direct area. But I was in the centre of London for for work. Yeah. And I got a bunch of texts like, "Oh, are you all right?" And I was like, "What's happened? It, what?" <laughs> and they're like, "Oh, there, there was an attack. Are you are you going to be all right getting home?" Like, yeah, I'm just gonna get on the train. Yeah, you know. yeah. Like nothing's gonna stop me. I want to go home. So obviously, it, I mean, in the, the people that were directly affected by it, of course, are gonna feel uh, levels of grief and anguish and stress and things like that. The wider uh, scope of London are just gonna get on with their day. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> because they're all miserable. You ever been to London, Jesus? I've been to London, man, and 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 to be honest, everybody just seems to be in their own little internal bubble. Yep, and, and that's the only way we get by. But um, so, but obviously, um, you know, in the news and across the country, there was this sort of uh, obviously uh, level of shock and distress 
at such an attack. It was an appalling attack. Don't, I'm not trying to belittle that. I'm just saying that Londoners are robots, basically. So, so Donald Trump Jr. has come out and seemed to criticise the exact view you've just espoused, which is it was a horrendous attack, and for the victims and their families, it is a very, very grave, horrible situation, and nobody yes. is is disputing that fact. But on a larger scale, on a wider stage, it was a fucking nutter who murdered some people outside of Westminster. This is the exact view, by the way, that um, Ant Middleton, the SAS guy on the show that I was mentioning earlier. Oh, sure, yeah. yeah he, he was on GMTV a couple of days ago espousing this exact view when asked the question, do you think we should be concerned about a terror threat? to the UK, he said, well, this, you know, by comparison to what we're used to dealing with on a day-to-day basis, both abroad and at home, this is a very, very low-scale, low-tech, poorly, un- poorly... poorly organised <laughs> attack. So <laughs> yeah, in terms exactly. of it being a terrorist attack, it's... It's on the low end of the scale of terrorism. Yeah, 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 yeah. It, yeah. I mean, you know, again, not belittling it, it was horrible. But if you're going to, if people will start, oh, the, the big terrorist attack, a dude running at someone with a knife... You, you know. Yeah, by highlighting it in that way, you give power to somebody that, that sh- quite frankly, should never be mentioned again in the same breath as any of the other people or the, the poor victims that were involved. No, of course not. And also, the other thing as well is, in attack that you just, even, even on an attack that on a grander scale, unless it was a huge, huge sort of city-wiping attack, you just have to get on with it. You have to get on with your life. You can't let that stop you. If you because when you do, that's when that's what they're trying to get out of you. Yep, yeah, sure. But Donald Trump Jr. has come out and or in the last few days he's seemed to criticize Sadiq Khan with a tweet. What's the date on the tweet? I can't I can't at the moment I can't get a, a, an exact fix on the date, but he said, You have to be kidding me. And by the way, he he's linked to a an independent article where Sadiq Khan had made a statement. He said, you have to be kidding me. Terror attacks are part of a big of living in a big city, says London Mayor Sadiq Khan, as if this is a bad thing. He, you know, he's just espousing the view we've just sketched and also yeah. uh, espousing a view which doesn't give power to so-called terrorist attackers. Uh, and also he, he made subsequent tweets which seemed to criticise Sadiq Khan's apparent silence on, on the issue. I mean, he's just linked you to an article... In which Sadiq Khan makes comments on this, by the way. And also, wasn't Sadiq Khan's statements like within the evening of of that attack? Yeah, exactly. This this is the the kind of point I'm trying to get to, which is um, people on on the alt-right, they seem to be in the business of completely distorting a media narrative in order to feed a certain cast of mind. And they don't check any Mm. of the facts. They just go, oh my God, Donald Trump Jr. said it, and he said it on a public platform, therefore I must take this as true um but he said you know he criticized uh, quite vehemently sadiq khan for apparently remaining silent on this issue the implication being that because sadiq khan is a is a muslim that he was somehow you know giving cover yeah, or advocating sort of like under, yeah and, and it's just despicable because i mean sadiq khan came out at 4 30 which i think is about half an hour after the attacks were made despite the fact that his office was completely on lockdown and made a statement mm. condemning the attacks and then later made another statement i think at about 7 30 you can't don't quote me on that because i'm not actually sure of the exact time but a few hours later saying exactly the same thing by the way theresa may our Prime Minister, came out at 9.30 and made uh, comments condemning the attack. I mean, there are, there are two issues here. One is a bandwidth issue, where it takes a little while to compose a political statement that's going to be nationally widespread. But the problem there is, in, 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 in real land, 
Really? Uh, yes, it, do, it does. It does take um, a while to prepare an official statement and publish it and get it out to him. In in Trump land, both Donald Trump and his Donald Trump's junior, his son, it takes about half a minute to write a tweet. And apparently, Twitter has now become their official avenue of communication. That's why there's a there's a disconnect there because we're still doing it the proper way. And the thing is, like, it's also mildly moving away from the point, but in the same vein. Um, why are tweets news now? The, the amount yeah. of time you go on, like, a news article as, like, this person tweeted this. Like, I mean, to be, we're pretty guilty of it now, talking about Donald Trump Jr. tweeting. Why is Twitter news? It's a bunch of bollocks that people spew within 140 characters. Like you say, because this has become such a systemic issue within the media... It's forced us to have to reference Twitter in order to get a handle on some of these issues. Because if we didn't, we wouldn't be able to pull some of the strands of, you know, we wouldn't get any reference points in. We have to go Idiocy. to Twitter because this is where these stupid debates are occurring. It's it's madness. It's, it's madness. A, I know. Of it. Oh dear, oh dear. So the the point we're trying to get to is that it took a couple of seconds for this guy Donald Trump Jr. to make this tweet to the world, given that he is, you know, the son of, arguably, the leader of the free world. Um, it took him a couple of seconds to do that. And that immediately distorts a very high percentage of the population's view on Sadiq Khan, who is the mayor of London, who is the guy, it's... you know, he's supposed to be the steward at that time of London during a, an alleged, or as represented by Donald Trump Jr., a terror attack. And it's it, it it doesn't paint him in a good light. And and the way it doesn't paint him in a good light is not by making a genuine criticism of the guy. It's by distorting facts and leaving out deliberately leaving out facts. I don't I, I don't know whether Donald Trump Jr. was ignorant of, of, of uh, some of the facts, but this is most why... likely. So this is this is the state of the media. This is where we are now. We are in a place where um, compassion, sympathy empathy and the idea of community are now being rebranded by the alt-right as signs of weakness um we're in a place where appealing to data and research-driven trains of thought are seen as unwanted pedantry we are in a place where anyone who points out that some of us aren't actually qualified to make informed decisions on these issues are sanctimonious we're in a media narrative driven world in which our arguments do not have to pick out or track any empirical data or real world events in order to gain traction. That's where we are. And it is summed up very, very nicely by something uh, that were, that came out of the British media a couple of months ago um, concerning our original topic, uh, Brexit and EU, leaving the EU, which was uh, Michael Gove, our Justice Secretary, saying that People in this country, referencing the UK, have had enough of experts. We're sick. We're sick of them. You know all those people who know what they're talking about. Fuck them. We don't want to. We don't want to know what you know. We don't want to know all the things that you actually know. We want to hear some gibbering idiot on a popular media outlet or social media talking bollocks. That's what we're more interested in now. And we would. We would rather just hear views that substantiate and that affirm our very quick intuitions about these issues than actually 
try and exercise, I'm going to say it again, empathy, sympathy and compassion towards people with whom we might disagree. And I know I know, we might seem a little bit hypocritical because we're taking a bit of a hyperbolic stance and in our own way whimsically trying to disparage this kind of this kind of thinking, but I really think it is half of the problem. Definitely. And I, I think you highlighted to me a couple of days ago one of the proposed solutions to the problem which actually it, it kind of, it's kind of a tertiary issue which kind of falls it's like some of the crumbs that fall out of the breadbasket of the the, <laughs> the issue of, of of having a rational discourse in our in our media in our news in our even in our politics and it's the issue of being charitable in conversation and actually not assuming debate well yeah so i recently um have become very interested in the principle of charity, as you said, charitable discourse. Yes, and it was something that came up during uh, university. It's the first time I found out I was doing a critical thinking course, and I think you did it along with me. I think everyone in philosophy had to do critical thinking. I was there. I was there, man. Yeah, it was good. I actually really enjoyed that module. It was great. Um, but anyway, so critical thinking is a wonderful, wonderful thing to get into and start reading up about. And it's all about proper discourse and just getting to the bottom of things in the best way possible. Yeah. I think is a fair assumption, a fair layman's term explanation of it. Yeah. So I uh, the I came across the principle of charity and recently I have uh, been more interested in it because I can see that it's... And I got this mostly from uh, the online space looking at comments on youtube and i use reddit a lot and facebook comments which are worse than youtube comments actually but nobody exercises this in any way not even in a, an untrained just just as an, a general person nobody uses this we don't have this anymore it's totally gone and that made me start thinking even within um our sort of political dealings in the west from the EU debate and Brexit to uh, the actions of Donald Trump and Donald Trump Jr. and not just them, many other people across that sort of political sphere. No one's using it. We don't use it. And it was, I was, I went to the doctors yesterday uh, <laughs> for, uh, I know, random segue, but I was in the waiting room for about an hour. And on the in the waiting room, they had um, a telly, and it had daytime TV on it. What? And not just daytime TV, but like morning talk shows, Holy like shit. panel shows. Ah, oh, if you ever want to just listen to the worst piece of piss discourse you can ever listen to, way to feed the sick and unhealthy, man. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I know. And they were talking. They would, do, but it wasn't like Jeremy Kyle chat show or like Moray or or Jerry Springer or anything like that. It was like a political talking about Brexit one, and oh my god! Oh, and like the right stuff had, or something, where they just have a complete. Yeah, jump. I think it might have been the right stuff. Don't want to don't want to come out and criticize them too hard because I guess this is a kind of pl- public platform. But that kind of thing is just such a junk food style of debate. Oh, I mean, it is bad. But what the funniest thing to me was they had people phoning in, like members of the public phoning in. And they were asking about Brexit and they were also asking about the potentially upcoming Scottish referendum for them leaving the UK. Yeah. Um, and it, the funniest thing is they let the, the poor public, they let them talk for about five seconds and then just shouted over them about how they're wrong. Yeah, It was absolutely. the funny, funniest thing. It's like, so, hello, yes, this is Gary on, on the line five. Um, Gary, what do you think? Well, I think that we should... No, you're wrong. The stupid. That's not... And I was like, Jesus Christ, these people are phoning in and you're just pissing on them, basically. It was it was disgusting. 
no element of of charity or even trying to listen and understand where the people phoning him were coming from. Absolutely. Well, I think this is one of the problems that stems from a number of places, one of which being adversarial politics uh, by its very nature. It sort of, it assumes the debate format, doesn't it? Which, you know, something like Brexit, I don't even I don't even see the issues underlying the Brexit referendum as a debate. It's a hard conversation that everybody needs to have together and work out how we're going to proceed. But be- yes. be- because of the nature of adversarial politics, the way it was framed is that you're a member of this camp or you're a member of the opposition and you're going to duke it out and butt heads and the winner of the referendum is the winner of life. Like you win life if you win the referendum. Like you win you, have you won win forever. You win the future going forward. But when in fact actually it concerns all of us. It concerns everyone because we're going to need to find a way to actually find commonality with each other. Even even people that we were opposing argumentatively um, in the run-up to Brexit, we're going to have to find a way to work with them now because this was the, the majority decision. So it do- the, the adversarial model doesn't hold at any level of this kind of conversation, and yet we still try and impose it at pretty much every level of our public conversation. You, you, mentioned, uh, you mentioned YouTube, and I was just going to pick your brain a little oh, bit, actually, because I was going to see if you remember a time where, um, you know, we, me and Eddie, we, we, when we were younger, we used to spend quite a lot of time online, you could probably tell. I still do. That's, <laughs> that, that, that's, when I was younger, what are you talking about? <laughs> Yesterday. Yeah, and... and, and you know, you had your, you probably had your regular haunts online, just just like I did. Oh um, yeah, and you knew that there were places to go and to stay away from if you wanted to have rational conversation with people. And other places, <laughs> yeah. you know, people would just say if you complained at the level of discourse was, that was happening, they would just say, "Well, look at where you are. Like you're on YouTube, mate. Like you are, you are <laughs> yeah, literally in the comments expect? of YouTube. What level of discourse do you expect?" But the trouble is, like you've just you, you've just highlighted really well, I think. It's it's kind of trickled up now into higher level of conversation. Like it has, it really has. <laughs> it, it's like we used to think that our oh, YouTube comments are like the, the way because all it is is just one person spouting their opinion and like no one's listening. It's yeah. all just talking. But I think the problem is that as social media has become so much more uh, like important in in our lives and so much of a bigger deal in people's lives to the point where the president addresses his country through it. Um, people learn their social interactions through their social media. And so now a lot of it is you're not really listening to what anyone else thinks. You're just there to shout louder than everybody else and get as many followers and as many people who agree with what you're shouting about. And I know because we seem to be assuming a strong position on some of these issues in this podcast, um, People will probably kind of say, "Well, you know, you're being kind of hypocritical here. You're 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 kind of advocating this principle of charity whilst also shouting down your opponent." But I mean, and my answer to that is yes, <laughs> <laughs> yes, we are. Um, but no, obviously, obviously, in, in this po- podcast, we take a kind of hyperbolic tone. But we aren't opposed by our nature to entertaining charitably hard conversations so i mean we're, we're willing to take any guests onto this podcast and we will have oh, a chari- don't say that well not any guests now right. we're gonna now we're gonna have just some <laughs> mad people coming up well, the sort of people who listen to this at least <laughs> but the, gen- the general point is we're willing to participate in any conversation really oh yeah we're whimsical by nature we're whimsical 
Whimsical by name, whimsical by nature. Exactly. It's not hypocritical of us to take a strong position whilst maintaining that we should be charitable whilst we do it. Because, uh, you know, principles of charity don't necessarily involve a softening of your position. They involve a general approach to conversation, which isn't being covered, we think, pretty much at every level of, of, of public conversation at the moment. Yeah, pretty much. So, I mean, there was a, a, a funny story was that uh, my granddad um, used to have a a friend of his who was a, I think he was a Jehovah's Witness. Right. And he used to come over, and my granddad was uh, not a religious man by any sort. I don't think he was even a spiritual man, but um, he read a lot of... He, he was not a man of God. He was not. <laughs> he was not. <laughs> but he, he read a lot of... Um, you know, books and philosophy and religious texts just to kind of get a grasp on the world. And he would just, yeah, he would have this Jehovah's Witness who would come over and he'd sit him down and just chat with him. Nice, just, man, just nice. Just have a chat. He didn't agree with what he was saying. He didn't, um, and he wasn't converting to... Are you sure it was your Jehovah's granddad Witness? and you're not, you're not, you're not conflating a story with one of my, <laughs> one of my anecdotes? <laughs> No, this wasn't your granddad. Was my gra- he definitely was. Do we have the same granddad? No. Am um, I your grandfather? <laughs> <laughs> uh, why did you used to let the Jehovah's Witnesses in and I, chat with them? I absolutely let Jehovah's Witnesses into my house. Oh yeah. no, uh, never do. No offense to Jehovah's Witnesses, but oof. yeah. Well, as Eddie knows, tough crowd. I have an academic background in, in philosophy and also biological and cognitive sciences, and I was fresh out of my undergraduate graduate degree in philosophy, so I was hot off the the critical thinking and and, and, and logic press, so to speak. Um, and some Jehovah's Witnesses came to my door. I just I just moved back to idyllic countryside. Um, we've spoken about where you live on the podcast. Yeah, we spoke first episode. It is the place that I've referred to as what did I call it? Um, ge- see, ge- geographical slime or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it sounds about right. Yeah. yeah either way, um, some 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 really well intentioned. I'm sure Jehovah's Witnesses knocked on the door, and I was fresh out of university, and I was like keen to sharpen my critical faculties and my conversational technique so i invited them in for a cup of tea and uh, and a digestive <laughs> <laughs> nice um, classy and we, we we talked about some scripture and it was interesting um for about five minutes and then i realized the kind of water i was getting myself into um, <laughs> yeah i mean like like i said tough crowd well yeah the trouble the trouble is they're not open to having a, a, a an open discussion you know it's a complete missionary faith i think they think that 144,000 of them get elected by the divine artificer to go off the, the, the book of revelations end of the world times um mm. and they're the 144,000 elect specimens that will go and be seated with god and the way that they can do that is by conf- converting people in their lifetime to the faith is that is that really what it's based on that is i believe why they knock door to door and try and convert people on the doorstep my it's the religious pyramid scheme Keeps it ticky over, right? You don't make money, you just get eternal salvation. Where the fuck do you think all those shiny leaflets, watchtower leaflets come from? <laughs> yeah, true. Blimey. Uh, I didn't I actually didn't know that. I just thought that like they would the they were a bit preachy. They are a bit preachy, and and for the well, most yeah, part, they are obviously. The, the, like, the, I didn't know it was a pyramid scheme. Yeah, they believe it's a divine imperative to be preachy because they believe that it's sort of oh, you know, that or eternal damnation. And I don't mean to be offensive by calling them a pyramid scheme, but that is basically what it is, let's be fair. But, you know, they were really lovely people. It's just they really oh, sure believe they that they're coming from a, a, a filter of, I believe this is actually a, a divine imperative, otherwise I'm going to be doomed to eternal damnation. And the, But that also means that they're not exactly going to be um, 
welcoming of you sitting there going, well, let's talk about why you're wrong. And and, and, <laughs> and also not necessarily employ the principles of charity in their dialogue because it's not very quick. Like, <laughs> No, true. You need to you need to convert as many people as possible. You haven't got time to listen. You've got no fucking time to be messing around, mate. This the is... end of the world's only round the corner, man. Come on. Speaking of which, have we laid out a a, a, a small idea, like a brief summary of what the principles of charity are in conversation? Well, I think we we got we did a summary. We did like a, a layman's summary. Yeah. But do you want to go? Do you want to go in depth? Not really. I think, you know, well, actually, I, I want to give a couple of really good examples of how to employ the principle of charity in this podcast, um, because yeah, I, I, I came across there's one really well-known one that was written um, in a book called Intuition Pumps by Daniel Dennett. He's one of he's one of my he's one of my dogs, one of my favorite, <laughs> favorite philosophers slash <laughs> yeah, he's my uh, boy. So one of my favorite philosophers slash cognitive science scientists who cool. spends a lot of time thinking about this kind of thing because um, he, he, he has positioned himself publicly such that he's going to need to have a lot of, or he has needed to have and will have to have future difficult conversations with people and interloc- interlocutors. Um, and there's another one that I actually think distills the ideas of Dennett's down into its sort of rawest form and that's most easily digestible. So Daniel Dennett's rendering of of, of, of how to handle the, the principles of charity actually come from um, a French, well, he's a social psychologist and a game theorist uh, called Anatole Rappaport. That's an awesome name. It's amazing. Say it one more time. A- Anatole Rappaport. <laughs> yeah, I and, love it. And and he often, he often um, calls them Rappaport's rules for short. That also has a good ring to it. And, and just so we don't incur any any plagiarism calls, I'm going to reference that this is actually pretty much quoted verbatim, or at least I'm paraphrasing from Intuition Pumps by Daniel uh, C. Dennett here. This is his recipe for apparently composing a successful critical commentary. The first is that you should you should attempt to re-express your target's position so clearly and lucidly that your target kind of goes, "Thanks, man. I wish I I thought of putting it that way myself." Okay. The second point is you should list any points of general agreement uh, with your interlocutor. The third is you should mention anything you've learned from the person that you're aiming to criticise. So I learned this about their position that I didn't know before, or maybe actually their position was a tiny little bit more subtle than I first thought. And then Mm -hmm. only then when you've satisfied those three rules are you permitted to say a word of rebuttal or criticism or pushback. Ah, okay. So just to recap on my end, you have to uh, be able to uh, almost... 100% 100% with 100% accuracy uh, repeat their stance back at them but in an even better manner uh, the second one is to list any points of general agreement so you're on the same page and then number three is to make sure sh- uh, to list anything that you have learnt either from them or about them and then at that point can you begin to push back and pick them apart which is interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So on the first one, I think that's great. That's that's probably my favourite one of Rappaport's rules because a lot of people don't realise that actually when you restate your opponent's argument, they might have not made themselves as clear as they could have been, um, and that and thus there might be some kind of confusion. But this is this is an opportunity to kind of tease out any point of confusion because you can restate their argument to them and try and help them make it stronger. Great if they've made the strongest case available on this 
particular view, that's great. Just restate it back to them. But if, if there's anything you can do to help make that more robust, it's going to make your rebuttal look stronger in the end. <laughs> if you defeat yeah, the strong definitely. guy. <laughs> make, make it the best it can be. And if you can, try and try and weed out from their thoughts how they think that you should be making it better for them. Really give them a hand if they need it. I've needed help to try and clearly expose my argument all the time. So I'm not standing from a point of condescension and saying that you should be helping your opponent to make their argument stronger. I'm just saying that everybody should be trying to help each other. Every, well, I mean, it's just the case of, you know, uh, two minds is better than one, isn't it? Two hands you know, are better than one. one. Twice <laughs> the fun. Oh, blimey. Um, <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Teddy. Oh, Teddy. Teddy. Steady, Teddy. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, two minds is obviously better than one. And you can you can ha- come up with a fantastic uh, sort of argument and point. But once it's run through someone else's noggin, yeah. uh, you can definitely get it. I mean, I know it's specifically me. I mean, for someone who's now running a podcast again, uh, verbally and on the spot verbally, I, my words fail me all the time. I'm definitely a written, uh, a written converser, shall we say. So uh, it's sometimes it's good to have someone just repeat back to you what you said and be like, "Yeah, that's definitely what I meant," even though you basically just spoke gibberish at them. Are you passively trying to pick out a really annoying habit that I have of, of repeating what people say back to them? No, not at all. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about, man. I don't know. I don't know. I don't no, know. you're silly. <laughs> but yeah, man, I agree with you. I'm, 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 oh, I really? Do, what I, did I just say? You said that you... No, I'm joking. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> you got me. <laughs> you got me. But yeah, uh. so that that's one sketch. My favourite rendering of a way of charitably rendering a criticism. But what, there's another one. I recently, I, I saw in a TED Talk that nicely kind of distills that down. And it was from, do you know uh, Megan Phelps Roper? Do you know the, the Phelps Roper family? They're probably more famously known as the members of the Westboro Baptist Church. Oh, okay, yeah, I do know the Westboro Baptist Church. You know who I'm talking about. Well, I, think, I know. I think Megan Phelps Roper is one of the middle daughters, or maybe the second eldest daughter. I could be wrong on that. I don't know. I haven't actually got a Wikipedia page up in front of me. <laughs> well, that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> yeah, so, should have been more prepared. Yeah, I, know, I should have been. Second eldest daughter or middle daughter of Shirley Phelps Roper, who is the daughter mm-hmm. of the, the patriarch, who is now sadly deceased. Well, I don't know if it's sadly, but he is definitely oh, deceased. Is it, is it sadly? I mean... Sad when anyone dies, but... So she is the granddaughter of Fred, Fred Phelps. And I've got to say, in recent times, she has impressed me beyond belief. The the level of courtesy and rationality that really? she... Yeah, that she's that she's put on display. She has recently... I'm very surprised. Yeah, she's defected from the church. I'll explain it. <laughs> that explain, explains a lot of it. She's no longer a member of the Westboro Baptist Church, and she is actively trying to criticise her old way of thinking. She's not necessarily criticising her family. She is criticising a mode of thought that she feels that she's been trapped in her whole life. And trying to explain, yeah, trying to explain the kind of the, the machinery behind it and why she thought what she mm. thought and why she now knows. It's ridiculous. Cool. I'll have to check that out. So she was doing a TED Talk? Yeah, she recently did a TED Talk on this very subject about how to have very difficult conversations with people you definitely are going to disagree with. And she gives what she's learned from her experience in the Westboro Baptist Church and distills it down to four conversational techniques that she's learned about how to have very difficult... Because she's literally coming from one of the most extreme positions imaginable in terms of... (laughs) Yeah. I mean, sociopolitics. She's coming from a position that's analogous, really, to the kind of person that would have stabbed the people outside of Westminster a couple of days ago basically yeah i mean i know the westboro baptist church were a non-violent let, let's just make that clear 
they've never shown any sort of signs of being a violent organization but in terms of their actual oh, but watch them just in case yeah it, it, don't t- turn you back to them in terms of in terms of the, the the level of their literalist interpretation of the scripture they are pretty much bang on the money with with extremism yeah so she has come up with the the, the following four way uh, sort of conversational rules the first is never assume that your opponent has bad intentions so don't assume at the onset of a conversation that the person you're talking to is malicious because in doing that you tend to get angry sort of go off on one that is what the left currently are very guilty of what sort of going off on one at people well just assuming as instantly if you're talking to like a leave voter that they must be a bigot and so you go into that conversation going, yeah, well, this person's a bigot, so I'm not going to listen to them. Or that derails a conversation before you even had it. I think I think that's exactly right, actually. And I've, I've been in the Huffington Post a couple of times and made some pretty strongly worded arguments. And I think the, the hardest pushback I got from the, the leave crowd has been that, that, you know, I'm just articulating a very angry position and I'm not making a real effort to try and understand what their view is, which I'm not necessarily sure I agree with in the particular articles they were talking about, but I, I, I can see that being a general problem in conversation. Yeah. So yeah, don't assume bad intention of, of your interlocutor. They they probably aren't trying to be an arsehole, basically. They just really believe what they believe. Yep. I, yeah, that, that makes sense. Rule number two. Rule number <laughs> You sound like you really fucking enjoyed this, man. <laughs> I am. Uh, the second is ask questions. So if you feel, if you, so basically, if you feel that lump rising in your throat and you feel like you want to really, really fuck someone up because of what they just said, <laughs> probably because you misunderstood them. So maybe ask a couple of questions to to get them to clarify. This is going back to the sort of the first of rapper pause rules, which is ask yeah. questions, try and tease out their argument from them. Don't just assume the Mark Brewer style of argumentation is is the like that's it. Like sometimes a strongly worded argument can be a veneer for a very very subtle tapestry of of arguments. Um, what the fuck am I talking about? <laughs> <laughs> hey, literally, I was sitting there going. Uh, what? <laughs> what was he okay. saying? He's, yes. He's made a word salad. <laughs> Alternative facts. But what do you think about that rule, man? Asking questions. It, it's it def- it's a very, very simple rule. And it's a bit like, are you discussing something with someone? You know what you should do? You should discuss. And I would say it sounds obvious. Yeah. And yet, again, it'd be one of those things that, unfortunately, seems to be missing from a lot of people's... Uh, foray into discussions and conversations with people and it's it's so almost shockingly simple that we have to be that has to be a rule but there you go says a lot about the world doesn't it and her third offering is you know it kind of falls out of asking questions it's stay calm just try and go into your zen place (laughs) give your power become your power oh nice yeah i can see that don't get so no i was just saying don't get hit up and and lose yourself in it which again is something that pretty much both sides are very very guilty of don't lose your shit man because you have lost the argument <laughs> if you lose your shit your argument is part of your shit and if you lose it and if you lose it you've lost it so the fourth and last is quite simply it's make the argument because a lot of people you know they, they get stuck up on having like a side discussion about certain premises of the argument they forget to actually flesh out how they think the conclusion follows in getting so pet up about apparent bad mm. intentions and asking questions and staying calm the, you know the fourth is really simple you just actually fucking make the argument now do you think that 
the the lack of people actually making the argument is based on people not really knowing what they're trying to talk about until they start talking about it, much like this podcast. Yeah, that's an interesting question, actually. Um, you know, like, do, can you make a full argument without an idea in your head, a pre-planned idea in your head of where you're actually trying to go? Or are you just seeing an instant thing that makes you like, oh, I really need to comment on that because I really disagree with what this person's saying. And then halfway through you go, what do I, what am I hoping to gain from this? What is my end goal in this conversation? That's what happens to me on Reddit a lot. I end up not, not, not angrily, but talking to someone who, who expresses a point and I express a point and, you know, we, we continue. And I suddenly think like, why am i in this what <laughs> how did i get here how did i get here but what you know like three hours deep into a conversation and lots of downvotes three hours and balls deep. What, what is what was my aim in in what was i trying to convey to this person what was i trying to prove <laughs> other than i don't agree with you <laughs> yeah exactly yeah that's it right there's no that i had no point i just wanted him to know that i didn't agree with him i've definitely had that moment in youtube threads like before now realized two hours in that i've just wasted half of my day telling somebody who clearly you can argue them five ways to sunday and they're still not going to understand what you're saying and and you, you you've just wasted all that time being angry about something you don't need to be angry about it's just one person's view on the internet just have no no real rationale for going into it other than i need to set this straight yeah that reveals another massive point about why there's this loss of charity online especially on websites like twitter and and, and youtube and places like that is you you don't ever really get a sense that you're talking to a human being you're kind of interacting with these words that keep popping up every now and then at various intervals that seem to be mm. disagreeing but at very few points do you really stop and I'm guilty of this as well, you, you stop to consider that on the other side of that wall of text and a computer screen is a human being who's actually probably responding emotionally to what you're saying and getting as angry as you are. And if you were having that conversation in real time, you'd notice their facial expressions and you'd have more motivation to be more empathetic towards them just because you can sense their presence as a human being. Of course, and it, it is definitely true that anyone who's been in a relationship or a very close friendship knows that when, you know, when you're trying to text and talk, that never goes well for you. Yeah, man. Because you just don't get the emotional response back. And so, and obviously we've always known that the internet is a really easy place for people to just dehumanise each other in a way. You don't see them as a real person. That's why, like, trolling comes about and why people can be so vicious and horrible online, because they don't see them as real people, and you are anonymous online. So not only is the person you're talking to anonymous, but so are you. So you are both concealed, like you're, you are covered from their emotional response, and you as a person are also concealed as well. So it's two disembodied voices shouting at each other. So I definitely think our, like things have stemmed from this sort of online culture of of this of discord a very one-sided and one-way street kind of discourse but i feel like eddie i feel like we've been all kind of down in the doldrums at the moment with the, with this podcast and we're going in a very very negative direction because but i feel like we do have or we we at least think we, ha we, we we've got some solutions with the principles of charity so are there any yes. examples of charitable conversations that you've noticed recently that have given you hope that um that you know it might not be all a pessimistic way forward no, not really. <laughs> <laughs> oh, insane. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> oh, where are we? Who are we? What are we doing? <laughs> so there aren't any, there aren't any, there aren't any conversations that you, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be in the public domain. It could be a conversation you've had with a friend. And you thought, yeah, that was a really you nice know what? conversation. You know what? 
You know what, Mark? You know that there has been one that has made me feel really good about the way that people get together and discuss. Yeah. And it's this one. Oh, shit. I've been very happy. Oh, he did it. He went there. He's plugging the shit out of this podcast. (laughs) I'm plugging the podcast within this podcast. Fucking meta. Meta casting. Brilliant. How about you? Has there been anything that has sprung to mind other than this one, of course? Um. <laughs> See, when you asked this question, you had no answer yourself. I'll tell you what, actually. There is a guy that I work with. I won't go into deta- too many details about what I actually do for a living, but there is a guy at work who I've got to say has the nicest way of engaging in difficult conversations. Um, He doesn't. <laughs> he sits in the fucking corner with a face yeah. like thunder. He pretty much follows all of Rappaport's rules. He has a way of speaking to you, which makes it seem as if he's never directly disagreeing with you. But when you've come away from the conversation, you kind of think, oh shit, he just told me that my argument was completely wrong. On <laughs> and then you kind of I love that. It's really nice. He kind of he kind of carries you like a child in his arms through the conversation. Is he a uh, is he an older gentleman? He's probably about twenty years older than me. Um, yeah, fair. He's he's had time on this. He's had a lot of time to work out his conversational style, and I've got to I've got to admit he is probably one of the most well reasoned, rational people I've ever met in my life. And um... the only conversation that I can really think of is actually a negative one where I was on a YouTube comment thread talking about a specific bass guitar and the sound it makes through its pickups, and um, because I was disagreeing with someone who thought that it sounded like crap, he just basically told me my ears were bad. Okay, so so yeah, he was just like, "You must have bad ears because you clearly think this bass guitar sounds nice." And I was like, "What? You can't say that!" <laughs> I literally commented back, "Like, you can't say that. That doesn't work. Your ears are just bad. All of your aesthetic <laughs> choices are just wrong. Uh, just <laughs> bad. Exactly. You, you like that? Yeah. You're wrong. Your ears don't work. So there you go." I don't know why I asked this question, because I didn't have anything prepared. Because yeah, you just <laughs> totally derailed everything. <laughs> Actually, bringing us back round in a full circle, I think the Megan Phelps-Roper Ooh. conversation is the example that this kind of conversational technique does work and it does have purchase. Because it's the kind of conversational technique that she said basically convinced her out of her extreme worldview. It, it kind of showed her that people who she disagrees with do have compassion, which is completely contradictory to what she believed, and that they actually took the time to try and... And sit and talk to her. Uh, to talk to her and also understand where she was coming from to try and sort of get a sense of who she was as a human being and what her motivations were for holding certain beliefs. Mm. And then, you know, actually trying to come to her position and, and have a chat with her rather than just shouting from two mountains at the opposite ends of the country, if you know what I mean. Yeah, and really, I mean, I would really like to check out that TED Talk, and I think I will do because it sounds very interesting and sounds very, like I said at the beginning... I've been very interested in the principal charity, and that sounds like something that I will love entirely. But um, I think that is definitely the way that things need to move in order for us to get to a, a, a more unified state as a world, not to get too grandiose with it. Completely agree with you on that, and I, we'll we'll put a link to that in the um, in the blog, uh, and also I don't know if we can do it on the iTunes page, but we'll we'll, we'll try and link link to that. Um, if not, we can do a comment. Absolutely. I think I feel like this whole podcast cast so far so far has been completely contradictory to the spirit of the Vaults of Whimsy. So is there anything that you want to cover that's a little bit more lighthearted before we wrap up? Um you know Let me have a look. <laughs> Let me have a look in the back. 
Really okay, I've got yeah, I, I've no, I've got something for you. Just to just to add back for the people who may miss our old sort of uh, whimsical nature. Um, here is a here is an article from the Guardian, and it simply says the Tyrannosaurus Rex was a sensitive lover. New dinosaur discovery suggests <laughs> a sensitive lover. Does it go into any Tyrannosaurus, details? Tyrannosaurus had sensitive snouts that they may have enjoyed rubbing together while mating. Oh, so they do little nose kisses. Yeah, little, there you go. Little Tyrannosaurus Rex Eskimo kisses. Because they can't hug each other because their arms are way too short. <laughs> so they, they've got to rub noses. That's how it works. If you can't hug, you kiss. Dude, we've, we've covered all the fucking ends of the spectrum. We've gone, we've gone from like real political pessimism all the way to Barney the Dinosaur. <laughs> Barney the Dinosaur. <laughs> You know he can't play the keyboard. It's terrible. Yep, so next time we are going to be talking about the world's first proposed head transplant of a human being onto a... It, on, I think I believe it's onto another human being's body. So It is, yes. On that whimsical cliffhanger, we're going to say, I've been Mark from Mark's Got, Got Problems, and this has been Eddie Bird. Say goodbye. Hello. Fuck goodbye, you. Eddie. Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> Bye!